0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookshelf, the faculty division's podcast series that provides commentary by authors and others on important new books and works of legal scholarship. I'm your host, Bridget Flaherty. In this episode, Professor Keith Whittington, William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University, and Professor Frederick Schauer, the David and Mary Harrison Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia, discuss Professor Whittington's new book, Speak Freely. Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech. In Speak Freely, Professor Whittington argues that universities have a distinctive and important mission in American society, one that has been recently challenged due to campus free speech debates. Professor Whittington articulates the university as that which assembles and nurtures an open and diverse community of scholars, teachers, and students, dedicated to the production and dissemination of knowledge. Moreover, he asserts, The robust protection of free speech and civil discourse is essential to that mission. In Speak Freely, Whittington argues that a better understanding of the relationship between the critical functions of the university and the principles of free speech can help guide us in resolving the difficult challenges that confront the members of modern universities. Our conversation will begin with Professor Whittington's short introduction to his book and will be followed by Professor Schauer's comments, to which Professor Whittington will respond. The two authors will then engage in a bit of a back-and-forth dialogue. As always, the Federal Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. We hope these broadcasts, like all our programming, will serve to stimulate discussion and further exchange on the topics they address. And now, Professor Keith Whittington on Speak Freely, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech.
1: Thank you, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book and talk about these issues more generally. It makes sense to start by mentioning a bit about what motivated me to come to the book and write about this particular topic, particularly at this moment. I guess I have three sort of interrelated type of concerns in mind that really finally drove me to sit down and try to write this out. One is what I see is a declining appreciation of universities and what they do more generally. It plays out in lots of contexts, from legislative debates to arguments that students make as they enter into their experience in colleges and universities. And it seems helpful to try to sketch out a little more why we should value universities, what is the core mission of a university, and what is it we're trying to accomplish on university campuses. Secondly, of course, and more specifically, there have been lots of quite evident threats to free speech on campus. There's been a steady drumbeat of news reports of various episodes occurring on campuses across the country and and really on campuses across the globe as well as the United States, in which students, faculty, and administrators find themselves in trouble because of things they've said, or alternatively find themselves trying to suppress um, speech on campus uh, in various ways. And it seemed to make sense to try to think through more carefully why we ought to value free speech and, and try to think about how the general principles of free speech should apply to some of these ongoing controversies. And then finally, a third concern is one that's separated from universities, but simply trying to think about... The increasing intolerance of dissent uh, in our polarized society, more more generally. So I hope that thinking about free speech issues in the context of universities is helpful not only for thinking about universities, but ultimately is also helpful for reaffirming some important liberal principles of tolerance of disagreement and how we ought to try to proceed in an environment in which we're going to likely disagree with us about politics in various ways, and yet we nonetheless still need to live together and work together and try to create a productive and tolerant society. And... As noted, the concern of the book is really try to back away from thinking about the First Amendment in U.S. constitutional law as such and try to think about uh, these issues of free speech from a a broader perspective, from a civil society perspective, Um, of why we ought to value free speech and tolerance or dissent more generally. Um, I think constitutional law is very helpful in trying to think through uh, how we ought to examine specific kinds of problems that arise. Those problems have often arisen in a legal context, and judges have helped us think through how to apply general principles um, to specific kinds of concrete controversies, and those are often helpful. Um, I think for people on college campuses to sort of see how this is played out in other contexts and how that can help us think through the immediate controversies that we might face. But I also think it's important to emphasize to those on college campuses that they should care about free speech not simply because some judge somewhere is going to insist They do so, and there's a set of legal rules that apply to some college campuses that they have to um, respect, but instead to emphasize that uh, given the values and concerns of the university itself, people ought to care about free speech and seek to try to protect it. I think sometimes in thinking about these kinds of problems on college campuses, there's an inclination to think that we're in a uniquely bad moment for campus free speech issues and that the current generation of students are particularly troublesome uh, when it comes to free speech. And so frequently they're derided as snowflakes who are unusually sensitive and too delicate to uh, confront the real world and the kinds of uh, disagreements and debates they're going to encounter in the real world. And I think that's a misleading way of thinking about the problem and it really misses some important issues that are going on on college campuses now. There's no question, I think, that Current students have their own set of concerns. They have their own set of things that they find particularly controversial and offensive. And and the things they find controversial and offensive might well be quite different than things that their parents or their grandparents found to be uh, controversial and offensive. But their struggle to balance a general appreciation for principles of free speech with particular controversies that they see in front of them is certainly not unique to them. So as long as social scientists have been studying really American citizens more generally, but often those who uh, live and work on college campuses more particularly. We found that Americans are often quite willing to say that they value free speech in the abstract. But when you start confronting uh, individuals with specific examples of speech that they regard as particularly offensive or controversial, people often start backpedaling and start thinking that this particular example of controversial speech uh, really falls into some kind of exception to their more general commitment to free speech. And on that front, the students today are not that different than students a couple of decades ago or 50 years ago. They sometimes have slightly different things that they think fall within the exception compared to what others have done. And so I think this is an ongoing struggle that we face on university campuses, but also in a liberal democracy more generally, to emphasize what those principles of free speech are and to try to commit ourselves to actually adhering to them, even when we find a particular thing controversial. So let me just sketch out briefly sort of what the book tries to do. I begin by thinking about the mission of the university itself, which I take to be, at heart, an effort to advance the frontiers of human knowledge and communicate what it is we've learned to students, to fellow scholars, and ultimately to the the general public. So at heart, universities are truth-seeking institutions that are trying to operate on the frontiers of what it is that we know. So universities also do lots of other things, but, but at the end of the day, that's the central mission, I think, of what universities are trying to do, and there are implications of being committed to a mission of that sort, and, and those implications ultimately should include a commitment then to free speech, to valuing skeptical inquiry, to valuing freedom of thought, to appreciating a tolerance for disagreement, and for wanting ultimately intellectual diversity. Universities are not always perfect about how well they pursue that mission or how well they actually try to implement those things that are connected to that mission. I think universities should struggle harder to try to protect free speech and try to embrace intellectual diversity and to create a greater tolerance for disagreement on their campuses. But, but they do have the aspiration of doing that, and I think that's an important aspiration um, and something that we ultimately want to reinforce. So then through the book, I try to talk some about why exactly we need to protect free speech given those commitments, and here I emphasize two slightly different kinds of concerns. One, drawing from John Stuart Mill in particular, thinking about the importance of free speech as really the only means for gaining true knowledge at the end of the day. if Universities are about expanding the frontiers of knowledge, the only way they're going to do that is if they protect scholars and students and faculty on, on those college campuses to be able to ask difficult questions, pursue the answers wherever they think they might lead, and be willing to say things that are controversial. Controversial both on campus, but also controversial the broader society. But The second thread that I also try to draw out some in the book draws more from the American constitutional experience which is to say we ought to be very skeptical about empowering people to act as censors, whether the people we're empowering are government officials or whether they're campus bureaucrats. That in the context of controversial speech, we've learned through long experience that we can't trust people with the power to suppress speech. And we ought to be skeptical about that in the context of law and politics in American society more generally. And we also ought to be skeptical of it in the very specific context of college campuses and the same problems that we've encountered across our uh, constitutional history of government officials abusing their power to suppress controversial speech that they find particularly disagreeable is something that also plays out uh, in a campus environment and those of us on campus ought to uh, learn that lesson and make the same move that American judges have made, which is to try to uh, protect speech as much as possible. And then finally, the book tries to apply those general principles to a variety of specific kinds of controversies that have arisen on college campuses, ranging from trigger warnings and safe spaces to thinking about controversial campus speakers to thinking about how faculty use social media. And there the concern is across sort of two basic fronts. One is to emphasize the importance of securing academic freedom, which is Fundamentally, a concern with guaranteeing some professional autonomy for scholars and how they research and what they teach to be guided by professional standards of expertise rather than uh, have their teaching and research channeled and limited by the influence of outside forces, whether that's public opinion more generally or orthodoxies on campus or economic interests that might intrude um, upon academic research and teaching. But also, secondly, universities should be concerned with free speech more generally. That is, they ought to be concerned not only with what Scholars are doing as experts trying to advance the frontiers of knowledge, but also allow for robust public debate on campuses of issues of general concern. The campuses have become important venues in which um, students and community members and, as well as faculty think about uh, important issues um, that affect society generally and try to take those issues and ideas fairly seriously and in that context as well, the universities should be concerned with creating a space in which there's lots of room for genuine debate about important issues of the day, a recognition that we're going to disagree about those issues, and yet, nonetheless, a tolerance for that disagreement and an invitation to engage in that disagreement, to engage in that kind of conversation. So ultimately, I hope that universities are committed to resisting conformity, to questioning orthodoxies to tolerating disagreement, and in order to do those things effectively, they need to foster an intellectual environment in which they respect intellectual diversity, they respect the fact that people are going to disagree, and they respect the fact that people are going to ask difficult questions and sometimes come to very controversial conclusions, and that's part of the learning process and part of how we advanced knowledge, and that's what universities ultimately need to do and shouldn't shy away from uh, sometimes doing things that are going to seem cited or controversial or even dangerous or offensive. So thanks.
2: Let me just say that I think this is a terrific and needed book. I agree with almost all of it. But of course, my role here is not to praise Keith, but to bury him, or to put it somewhat more gently, my role at least is to offer some skeptical observations, perhaps in the spirit of million inquiry. So first, bear in mind that both Keith Whittington and I are academics talking about free speech in general and academic freedom in particular. To some extent, that's like Texans or Saudis talking about the importance of oil, or French winemakers talking about the health benefits of Bordeaux. Academics are self-interested participants in debates about academic freedom and about free speech. And for those who are not themselves academics, it's important to take what academics say about academic freedom and free speech with, if not a grain of salt, at least knowledge of the self-interest that might be involved. So let me be a little bit more particular about that. So Keith Whittington says correctly in my view that universities in particular ought to be the kinds of places that don't have rigid orthodoxies, uh, that are open to challenges to orthodoxies. Here there's a very A very interesting observation came in 1950 from the great Judge Learned Hand of the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Judge Hand said, the interest which the First Amendment guards and which gives it its importance presupposes that there are no orthodoxies, religious, political, economic, or scientific, which are immune from debate and dispute. Back of that is the assumption itself an orthodoxy, and the one permissible exception that truth will most likely to emerge if no limitations are imposed upon utterances. So I want to talk for a few minutes just about free speech in general, or the First Amendment in particular, as itself an orthodoxy, I say this from a little bit of a self-interested perspective. I have been an academic for 44 years. Before that, I was a practicing lawyer for a few years. Both as a practicing lawyer and as an academic, I have studied, written about, taught about freedom of speech in general and the First Amendment in particular. So then we have a question. As an academic who studies free speech, should I be an advocate for free speech? Or as an academic who studies free speech, should I have the same kind of open-minded, dispassionate, distanced view about free speech that free speech encourages us to have about everything else? I say that in the context of Keith's book in particular, the subtitle, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech, It is entirely appropriately a book of prescription, a book of normative advocacy. That's a perfectly appropriate thing for him and others to do. But there remains at least some tension between the idea of advocating for free speech and thinking about free speech as itself a topic of academic inquiry itself a topic of scholarly attention, scholarly focus, and so on. So in light of that, it may be important to recognize that for all of the important and mostly correct things that John Stuart Mill said in On Liberty in 1859, there was also a very important rejoinder by the great legal and criminal law theorist James Fitzjames Stephen just a few years later in a book called Liberty, Equality, Fraternity. Stephen challenged Mill, not by attempting to shut him down, of course, but by engaging with him on his own terms. Somewhat later, the political scientist Wilmore Kendall responded to Karl Popper's The Open Society and Its Enemies by writing an important article called The Open Society and Its Fallacies. And throughout the free speech tradition, there have been important arguments either for limitations or for the idea that free speech itself may rest on more fragile philosophical foundations than its strongest advocates from John Milton to the present may have believed. So at the very least, I would urge those who are listening and engaging with this conversation to recognize that we might, in the spirit again of Millian inquiry, think about being at times appropriately skeptical about the idea of free speech, or more concretely, the particular American manifestation of it. Here we have a very strong example of American exceptionalism. The United States is not the only liberal democracy in the world, but Almost every other liberal democracy in the world, and maybe all of the other liberal democracies in the world, would restrict the kinds of speech that are getting students at Berkeley and Middlebury and other places so exercised. That doesn't mean that these other democracies are right to do so. It does suggest that there are other models in countries that are not fascist totalitarian dictatorships, and that it is at least worthwhile to think about that. It's also worthwhile to think about the fact that universities are themselves hotbeds of content regulation. I am sitting here with a pile of student papers in front of me, final examinations for my first year constitutional law course, Students will get better or worse grades depending on the content of what they say. Academic journals will publish or not publish things depending on the content of the submissions. In small seminars, the leader of the seminar appropriately will chastise students who go beyond the appropriate boundaries of appropriate discourse in a seminar, uh, and so on. So. Um, One um, slightly longer, but not very much longer, final observation. We need to get some sense of the scope of the problem. Every single example that Whittington uses in his book is real. They are all troubling, but it might be useful to think about how we would engage in a systematic inquiry into just how much of this there is, to what extent are ideas in general being stifled. I am inclined to think they are. I am inclined to think that Whittington is right. Um, But we have seen from many examples in recent history that at times it is easy for people or judges or members of Congress or others to think that some number of anecdotes are more representative of a larger problem than in fact they are. And then the question is, are we thinking about universities or are we thinking about society in general? And it may also be a mistake to generalize from problems in universities to problems in the larger society. Perhaps the smartest thing that has ever been said about this was said about two decades ago in the context of these issues by the Wall Street Journal columnist, Joe Queenan. So let me quote Queenan. The way the world works is this. Leftist intellectuals with harebrained Marxist ideas get to control Stanford, MIT, Yale, and the American Studies Department at the University of Vermont. In return, the right gets IBM, Honeywell, Disney World, and the New York Stock Exchange. Leftist academics get to try out their stupid ideas on impressionable youths between 17 and 21 who don't have any money or power. The right gets to try out its ideas on North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Australia, and parts of Africa, most of which take MasterCard. The left gets Harvard, Oberlin, Twyla Tharps Dance Company, and Madison, Wisconsin. The right gets NASDAQ, Boeing, General Motors, Apple, McDonnell Douglas, Washington, DC, Citicorp, Texas, Coca-Cola, General Electric, Japan, and outer space. adds Queenin, seems like a fair arrangement. All I would suggest from what Quinan says is that when we are thinking about the problem, it may indeed be, and I think Keith is right about this, there is a problem in universities, but let us not generalize to there being a problem in the larger society, and it may be that there are forces in the larger society that go in the opposite direction. And I will update that last observation or update Queenan and end with the final observation of the left gets Middlebury College, the right gets the National Football League. Thank you.
1: (laughs) So, of course, I mostly agree with those points, and I think they're important qualifiers for how we think about it. And I guess I resist a little bit thinking that we ought to regard free speech, Myself, as, as an orthodoxy on college campuses, like everything else, we ought to be prepared to debate it. And, in fact, if some institutions want to take a more restrictive approach to thinking about free speech, then um, I'm willing to be pluralistic about that and uh, let them go forth and try the experiment. I, myself, wouldn't want to be associated with that. I wouldn't want to send my daughter to such a campus. But if others want to uh, teach and work and learn um, on a campus that has built into it lots of restrictions on speech and scholarly inquiry, then let them try it out and see, and see how it works. Certainly, I think we get lots of value from approaching free speech issues from an academic perspective and thinking very carefully about what their foundations really are, what their implications really are, how we ought to put limitations on them. Rich Schauer has done lots of terrific uh, work in exactly that kind of vein, and I've learned a, a terrific amount from that. And so we ought to be thinking about free speech from that sort of skeptical, scholarly perspective. It just seemed like it also was necessary to talk about free speech in a, a way that was more explicitly normative and committed in order to address some of these current issues on, on campuses I also take very seriously, I think, this last point. I think it is worth emphasizing that it's a little hard to know what the scope of the problem actually is on college campuses. There's no doubt that there are problematic episodes of speech that goes awry, of events being shut down, of professors being fired for saying things that are controversial and When that happens, we ought to be able to identify them, point to correct principles, and try to resist making those mistakes again and correct them uh, when we've uh, made them. But it's hard to know just how extensive those kinds of problems are. It's hard to collect the data. It's hard to think about these things over time. We have some uh, interesting debates going on right now among people looking at general public opinion polling, trying to assess are current students, for example, more skeptical about free speech than uh, people in the general population or than students were 10 or 15 years ago. I think there are valuable debates to be had about trying to identify empirically just how skeptical students and faculty, for that matter, are about free speech. I think it's also worth trying to get a better handle empirically on how common some of these problems are. So, for example, the legal advocacy group FIRE has collected information on disinvitations of speakers on college campuses, and that's helpful as a way of trying to assess just how common uh, these things are. But even then, the data collection is very hard. Lots of things fly under the radar, never get reported, and as a consequence, I think there's often a, a fair amount of troubling activity uh, relating to free speech on college campuses that really do fly below the radar and, and go unnoticed, as well as these very high profile incidents that happen to get lots of attention. So, so I, do, I think it's important then not to panic about uh, what's happening on American uh, university campuses. But nonetheless, I think it's also important to uh, reemphasize emphasize uh, some of these core principles that underlie American universities and to try to ensure that faculty, students, and administrators uh, do their best to try to live up to those principles if they can.
2: I think that's right. But, I mean, the example of speakers who get disinvited is obviously real, but if you will excuse the double negative, I'd also be interested, or a, a careful data collection would include the speakers who are not disinvited that is what is the range of speakers who actually get to speak how does that compare to that range from 10 years ago 20 years ago 30 years ago and so on i don't have an answer to that question but as i said in lots of different areas it may be important not to take some number of examples as more representative than they are and i'll just end this bit with emphasizing again, as I said, I may have a special disability. Implicit in Keith's book is the idea that there are lots of academics out there who are advocates more than they are academics. I think he is right about that, but if I am an academic about free speech, then it may be especially important that I'm not an advocate. That's about me and not about the problem in general.